Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast with Steve Schallenberger. I'm your host, Jamie, and you're listening to the show that is guaranteed to help you transform your life and achieve results that otherwise would have seemed difficult or even impossible. Each episode is a mini training where you'll learn how to achieve extraordinary success. Steve is a number one national best-selling author. He successfully started 11 businesses in three separate industries. He is a highly sought-after keynote speaker and corporate trainer for large and small organizations around the world, executive coach, father of six, and founder of Becoming Your Best Global Leadership, Mr. Steve Schallenberger. We welcome you to the Becoming Your Best Global Leadership podcast today. This is Steve Schallenberger, your host. This is a great time of year. It's uh, almost Christmas. And the new year is just around the corner. It's a time of greater peace and selflessness, helping, giving, kindness, patience, uh, remembering others, and also who we remember this season for, not only at this time, but of course throughout the year, but particularly now, and that's the life of Christ. And it also leads right into the principle of the twelve principles of highly successful leaders that I'd like to cover now because this is really at the very heart of what he taught in so many ways, and that is the golden rule. And as you know, this principle, as we describe it, is the golden living the golden rule in both business and in our lives. And it's interesting as we reflect upon this and where he talked about it for the first time, uh, as we know, it's come up in many different cultures, but it was described differently as Christ taught this in Matthew seven twelve, And he had been, this is where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Great, what a sermon, oh my goodness. And he had been discussing the subject of judging one another. And so up comes this verse, the golden rule. And in essence, really, it is the timeless uh, and universal principle for good, better, best living. And it is a brief summary of all that really Jesus taught concerning our relationships with one another. Here it is, how he taught it. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. <laughs> it's that simple and yet so deeply profound. A summary of all the law of Moses and the Old Testament prophets taught concerning man's relation to man. But even more important, this rule serves as a perfect summary of good, better, best living. Uh, let's take the example. Uh, so what does it have to do with judgment? Well, how does this principle of treating others the way we would want to treat us fit into the context of judging others? Well, the answer is really pretty obvious. If we desire compassion and understanding when others judge us for our faults, then we need to be compassionate and understanding when it comes to judging others of their faults. Or if we expect fair and equitable treatment at the hands of others, then we need to be fair and equitable in our treatment of them. So today we will talk about examples of this application 
both in the impact in our business and why it is vital for our success, our being highly successful as leaders and in getting the right kind of results in business, these high-performing organizations, as well as the impact in our life generally in relationships with others. And just like every single other principle of the 12 principles of highly successful leaders, the outcome, uh, the consequences of doing this is 100% predictable. Every time that we exercise this particular universal principle, we get a predictable result. And we'll see that. And every time that we violate it, <laughs> uh, we will also see pain and suffering and, and uh, the consequences of the violating this. So let me just start out. Let's hit the, uh, if you don't mind first, the impact in business. And I'll give a little preamble to this. Uh, I saw a great article uh, by a fellow by the name of Thomas, Thomas Ambler, uh, from the Center for Simplified Strategic Planning, as he talked about this subject, and he said, we've all heard the ultimatum, my way or the highway. <laughs> uh, that's known as uh, uh, the golden rule, he who has the gold rules. <laughs> well, how does that work? Well, it's like autocratic management. It, it may be able to work on the short run. We may be able to force people on the short run, but really over the long pull, it works very poorly for lots of rather obvious reasons, and it's really doomed to failure. So is it possible that there could be another more effective golden rule? Well, of course, you know it, and it's the one that we've just talked about just a second ago, given on the Sermon of the Mount. This statement in other words, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you is so powerful, and it's considered to be the pinnacle of social ethics. Really, virtually all religions and serious philosophers have similar golden rules. For example, the Jewish rabbi Hiller states, what is hateful to you do to no other, or Confucian Confucius' version is, what do you not want done to yourself, do not to do to others. The Buddhist puts it this way, doing as one would be done by, kill not, nor cause to, be, to kill. <laughs> Our early Greek Stoics used the maxim, what you do not wish to be done to you, do not to anyone else. Now note that all of these other golden rules are stated in the negative. Uh, only Jesus' golden rule is framed in the positive. And so the question is, well, is that really significant? Well, absolutely. It's the difference between really positive goodness, proactive goodness, and reactive avoidance of badness. <laughs> and you can satisfy the negative form by doing nothing. The negative form is the base. It doesn't mean this is bad. I mean, they're trying to communicate the very same thing, but notice the difference here. The negative form is the basis of a society ruled by law, wherein everyone gives up some freedom in order to promote the common good. The positive version, on the other hand, requires a sensitivity, explains Thomas Ambler, uh, to the needs of others. 
putting yourself in their shoes and then doing for them what you would want them to do for you. And there is a world of difference between saying, I must do no harm to people and I must do my best to help people. This is the spirit of good, better, best. Now, what happens when an organization, let's hit the business application, actually puts this into practice? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Well, does it produce a more successful organization? Uh, what impact does it have on how people treat other employees, customers, suppliers, shareholders, and other stakeholders? Does it influence how employees view their roles and the commitments they've made or what happens to productivity, for example? What does it do to encourage prudent risk-taking? And what effect does it have on the sense and depth of community and teamwork? These are all great questions. And does it impact unity of vision and organi organizational focus? Well, this certainly impacts us in every way. I mean, J.C. Penney did it. His first store was called the Golden Rule Store. <laughs> he later wrote a book entitled 50 Years of the Golden Rule. To practice the Golden Rule requires that an organization treat it as one of its few core values. And as described uh, in some other works that have been done uh, by Mr. Ambler, uh, he, he states that it literally can transform its culture and align values among its people. And so this is really it. And, and its sources, for example, uh, this line of thinking come from Built to Last and Principle-Centered Leadership. They all uh, really describe the same thing, that having established and living these, these core values contributes significantly to strategic success. So the question narrows to what benefits would compel practice of the golden rule as a core value. And literally, we see this uh, in teamwork, in leadership, in innovation, in selling, and employee relations. Uh, in Jim Collins' recent book, Good to Great, he presents the findings of an extensive study to identify the chief contributors of the transformation from being a good company into one that is sustainably great. And this comes from leadership. So one such contributor is this leadership competency or style termed level five leadership. And the level five CEOs exhibited personal humility coupled with an unselfish, almost obsessive commitment to the welfare of the organization as a whole. And so I would suggest, uh, and this is borne out in study after study, that compassionate commitment to the practice of the golden rule is totally consistent with and can lead a CEO to level five leadership. In uh, his book entitled Good Business, professor of manager at the Drucker School of Management, Mihaly Sikcinchili Mihaly presents the findings of an intensive interview-based study of 39 
visionary business leaders chosen by their peers as exemplifying high achievement with strong moral commitment. And here are the three main types of calling that motivate these leaders. Number one is to do one's best. In other words, personal excellence. This is, once again, the heart of good, better, best. It's this commitment of always trying. It's the spirit. Number two, to help people. So aiding employees, customers, suppliers, and community in general lead to a better life. And number three is to build a better world. Now, every single one of these are at the very heart of the golden rule. This is really the idea. So as we think about this, this definitely has a big impact on the high performance of, of our organizations, creating a culture that makes a difference. So if you want a, a golden rule culture for your organization, I mean, if that's the type that you're looking for, if you do, don't expect it to be a quick fix. It's, it's like any other core value worth growing. It's going to require constant preparation and of the, of the soil and planting, fertilizing, cultivating, and harvesting. And it all starts with you and your personal decision to, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. And then you can say, it's my way, <laughs> the highway. <laughs> I love it. Uh, much different. Thank you uh, for Mr. Ambler for those great thoughts. This impact, and so number one, when we say live the golden rule in business and life, I believe that each one of you can really apply this test and see if you don't always consistently end up with a better result. Look at the counterpoint. Two come to mind. One is what was expressed to me recently by a key leader in a company. Uh, this happened about four months ago, and he indicated that there was a serious mistake made on a list, and as the mailing, emailing went out to thousands of customers, the names got scrambled. <laughs> oh my goodness, can you imagine? And people got the wrong, the, right, the email, but with the wrong name. So this person's supervisor just came unglued and reamed them one side up and down the other, and... Uh, this employee indicated right then, really everything changed. Said, first of all, I wanted to quit right then. But he also noted that fellow employees and he himself felt like he just started becoming disengaged, just showing up the work, doing the basics, doing what that person asked. So this is the counterpoint to this. This is the other side of not practicing the golden rule, where people are harsh or rude or they don't even intend to be. This may not be what they wanted to do, but the fact that they did not practice this, that they were harsh or what was perceived as even mean, uh, has a terrible consequence and a huge cost. Uh, this can be illustrated by my neighbor, uh, Carolyn Falmo, who was uh, just commencing a trip at the airport. It was going to be uh, going from one side of the United States to the other. So it was a good trip that day. And she was checking things with the sky cap out on the curb. And the fellow in front of her was 
going on an international trip to Europe. Uh, it was very interesting because this this flyer became very impatient with the sky cap and started yelling at him and uh, was unhappy and a, 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 an argument ensued. It, it was not happy. It was not pretty. wasn't pleasant. Uh, and it wasn't great behavior. It wasn't building relationships. I mean, that's what the golden rule does. It gives us the chance to have better relationships. And when you have a better relationship and higher trust, then things go better. Well, in this case, things went south, and the customer left, not satisfied, rolled his eyes, shaking his head, and left after the bags were checked. <laughs> and the skycap turned around to Carolyn and said, with a smile, calmly and peacefully, well, now, how, I, how may I help you? And Carolyn said, sir, how in the world can you do that? And uh, he said, well, ma'am, it's quite easy. He said, that man is going to London. Uh, his luggage is going to Israel. <laughs> now, how can I help you? <laughs> oh, my goodness. See, people actually have a way of getting back if they don't feel like they've been treated fairly. Okay, so that is the application, some examples in business. Let me just give a personal example of uh, something that happened to Roxanne and I and, and also our son Daniel and Anne when we were traveling in Chile. Our son Daniel had spent a couple of years there as uh, serving a mission, and he had come home after the two years in July. Well, we were excited to go back in December to visit southern Chile, which was at that time the summertime. They have reverse seasons from North America, and so this was a good time. We just finished a wonderful seven-day trip. It also happened to be Christmas. <laughs> this was the, right in the very heart of Christmas. And uh, it was quite interesting because as we were moving along the road, uh, we were riding on a bus. We had gone from Puerto Montt, which is on the coast of this uh, central area of Chile, to a place called Bariloche in uh Argentina, a lovely little community, place like uh, Lake Tahoe or Park City, uh, something like that. Great, wonderful. And we were on the final leg of returning from Barleloche back to Puerto Montt, where we were going to catch the plane and come home. We'd had a great trip. And uh, it was interesting because this it's about a 120-mile journey that involved multiple bus and ferries to travel from uh, Bariloche in Argentina back to Puerto Montt in, in Chile. And the bus had stopped once or twice to let people off when all of a sudden, now we're sitting in the very front of the bus, uh, uh, Roxanne, Dan, and I, and Dan was probably 21 and 19. We're having a great time. And all of a sudden, a couple stood up from the middle part of the bus, a German couple, and shouting out, uh, they've stolen everything. They've taken all of our money, our passports, everything. I mean, they were really, in a sense, besides themselves. The bus driver pulled over so we could all help search for the couple's backpack that had contained everything. Uh, and we quickly confirmed that, indeed, the backpack was gone. And apparently somebody at the previous stop had unfortunately, taken that backpack. The German couple was distraught. 
So what could they do? I mean, they didn't even have money to make a phone call. Uh, they spoke no Spanish, and as was spoken in the native language in the country of Chile. They were emotionally devastated over the loss of their passports, credit cards, and an ID. Uh, the cruise that they had scheduled uh, was going to begin the next day and certainly would not happen without their tickets. And they couldn't even get back to the port where the cruise was to depart. Really all seemed totally hopeless for them. I could see it in their face. So what could they do? Well, I thought how easily the plight of our fellow travelers could have become ours. We were on the same bus. We were just as vulnerable to the thieves or to somehow losing our valuables. And as I watched the German couple talking to one another, I thought, well, uh, I have about $200 in my wallet and we're leaving for home this evening and perhaps this amount would help. I indicated to the woman that we wanted to help and asked how much they needed. So she had come up, I'd invited her to come up, and she said, well, let me check with my husband. And I thought, okay, uh (laughs) uh-oh. She came back in a few moments, and she said, we need $500. And since I'd already measured my willingness and ability to help at about $200, I thought, well, this will test my humanitarian resolve. And and, uh, so after a brief conversation with my family, We pulled all of our money and found together in our collective pockets, we had a total of $540. So we decided that we could get to the airport and make it back home with our credit cards and $40 in cash for our taxi to the airport. So no problem, I thought. And as the experience unfolded, many things (laughs) went through my mind admittedly that no problem really wasn't my prevailing attitude secretly for at least a couple of moments. But two things set the course for our eventual decision. First and foremost was the question, what would we want someone to do for us in the same situation? And second, we decided that if we really wanted to help, we wouldn't worry about not seeing the $500 again, and especially if there was a chance it could make a difference to this couple. So we gave them the $500 and concluded our trip Uh, Actually, we felt great about it. Uh, And after returning home, we received this message from our new German friends. This was the email. Dear Steve, I'm writing this email from Puerto Natales to say thank you so much for your confidence you showed by giving us the money without knowing us. (laughs) And I'm expecting my husband back today from the embassy in Santiago de Chile with a new passport. We had a difficult time, many phone calls and rearrangements to get a new passport for us, and the police were not really that helpful at all. They let us sit in the police station several hours. We will arrive back in Germany on January 19th, and I'll transmit the $500 U.S. to you then as soon as possible. And we would also like to invite you and your family in our home, should you ever be In Germany, uh, we live close to Heidelberg and some very nice places worthy of visiting. Our son went to school for one year in the U.S., and my husband is traveling there a lot, and we'd really be happy to welcome you. Well, they repaid that money long ago, but better than any amount of money are the friends that we made in Germany. 
This is how it goes. When we say live the golden rule in business and life, the impacts are the same. And so because this is Christmas time, we had a group of CEOs over to our home last week uh, for a Christmas uh, dinner. This is a forum group with the Young Presidents Organization. Uh, we're part of that group. It's called the Gold Group, the older group. <laughs> they make you, they kick you out when you're 49, uh, but then they pick it up and call you gold once you pass 49. I'm happy to hear that. This is a great group of friends. Uh, they're movers and shakers. Uh, they really make a difference. What Roxanne and I decided to do was to share a book that uh, give them a book that we that Roxanne had purchased uh, uh, and found. It's called Silent Night, Holy Night, the Story of the Christmas Truce. Some of you may have actually uh, heard about this story. Uh, it, it took place uh, in 1914, and it's very interesting. It was right in the midst of war, a terrible, devastating war where millions died uh, in World War I. In the very middle of this, let's look at the impact of what this very same golden rule can have even in the middle of war at a special time like Christmas. And oh, that we could do this day in and day out. So here goes. I hope you don't mind this. Uh, I'm going to just tell this story. It's terrific. It's a, it won't take very long. A 19-year-old German boy left his job in London to enlist in the German army. English uh, boys working and studying at Hamburg in Paris returned to London, and they put on their uniforms and went back to fire upon their former friends. Can you imagine the horror of this? Secretary of Lord in, from uh, England, Lord Kitchener, expanded the British Army overnight by allowing schoolmates to enlist together. And the tragedy of these battalions was no more evident than at Somme, France. Hundreds of villages on both sides lost almost all their young men in a single battle. The little paybook that every British soldier carried included a last will and testament. And thousands of these booklets were collected from the bodies of young boys, many reading simply, I leave everything to my mother. And with a hearty or a backward glance, the promise of youth was poured into the blind and futile aggression known as this great war, World War I. And so this new century that was coming upon people brought a new kind of warfare. Field commanders quickly realized that digging in was the only way to sur survive the sweep of machine gun fire. And the German army had marched across Belgium before being stopped at Flanders Field. Some 60 yards away, British, French, and Belgian troops, troops languished in trenches infested with rats and lice, pelted with freezing rain and shrapnel. As the temperatures dropped, disease took hold. Snipers picked off any who raised their heads above the earthen wall. And the war was but four months old, each side losing thousands a day, both to bullets and that silent, common enemy, influenza. 
and between the opposing trenches was an area about the width of a football field, no man's land, littered with bobbed wire, frozen corpses. It was a sobering reminder of what the future might bring. Soldiers who survived later recalled their dead brothers being gathered up and stacked like cords of wood, and by war's end, over 10 million would be lost. Not surprisingly, given the circumstances, most of the soldiers were religious, and many were Christians. And on Sundays, communion was passed in trenches on both sides, often to the sounds of church bells ringing in nearby villages. The occasional hymn was sung, and youthful voices were heard across enemy lines. And by December, the war slowed, and hopes for a quick resolution faded away. And as the soldiers contemplated their desperate situation, nights grew long and hearts yearned for peace. December 23rd, just about now, over 110, 113 years ago, a group of German soldiers quietly moved to the ruins of a bombed-out monastery. There they held their Christmas service. Later on that night, a few Christmas trees bombs, as they were called, began to appear along the German fortifications, their tiny candles flickering in the night. And across the way, British soldiers took an interest in those lights as they sang together the carols of their youth. Word spread and heads peeked cautiously over the sandbags at the now thousands of bombs glowing like Christmas stars. Two British soldiers ventured over to the German line, and against orders, arranged a, a Christmas truce. But the negotiations was a mere formality by then. Up and down the trenches, men from both sides already had begun crossing the line to join the celebration. Lieutenant S uh, Sir Edward Hulse assaulted the enemy with music. <laughs> In a letter to his mother, he wrote, we are going to give the enemy every conceivable song from carols to Tipperary. <laughs> and the Germans responded with a Christmas concert of their own. And it was not long before the cold air rang with everything from Good King, Wenceslas, to Odd Lang Syne. And for the next two days, these tidings continued to spring from the hearts of common men who shared the common bond of Christmas, of this spirit that we talked about at the very beginning. Further down the line, a German violinist stood atop his parapet, framed against the skeletons of bare trees and shattered fortifications, delica delicately perched in this desolate landscape. His cold fingers conveyed the poignant beauty of Handel's Largo. Whatever the spirit of Christmas had been before that hour, it was now, above all, the spirit of hope and of peace. A British war correspondent reported that later the soldiers heard a clear voice singing the beloved French carol, O, o Holy Night, the singer Victor Grenier of the Paris Opera. The night watch must have lifted their eyes towards the heavens as they heard this plaintive call. Christmas Day dawned over the muddy fields, and both sides cautiously picked their way through the barbed wire 
Side by side, they buried their dead. A German officer known only as Thomas gave Lieutenant Hulse a Christmas gift, a Victoria Cross and a letter which had belonged to an English captain. Lieutenant Hulse responded by giving the German officer his silk scarf. One German retrieved a photograph of himself in uniform and asked his former enemies to post it to his sister in Liverpool. The men who had shot at each other only days before gathered in a sacred service for their fallen brothers. Uh, prayers were offered and the 23 Psalm, 23rd Psalm was read. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. And so they read it. Surely goodness and mercy must follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <laughs> 19-year-old Arthur Pelham Byrne, who hoped to study for the ministry after the war, remembered the Germans formed up on one side and the English on the other, the officers standing in front, every head bared. Yes, I think this is a sight one will never see again. And as the Christmas of 1914 drew to a close, soldiers who had sung together, played together, and prayed together returned to their trenches. They must have felt reluctant to let the common ground between them become no man's land again. But as the darkness fell around them, a lone voice floated across the few yards of earth on which they had stood together. And in the true spirit of Christmas, one voice, then another, joined in. Soon, the whole world seemed to be singing. And for a brief moment, the sound of peace was a carol every soul knew by heart. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round young virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, Sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. And that's the way it was one silent night almost a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago. And that's the way it can be as each one of us embrace this wonderful message as we live this tremendous principle of living the golden rule in business and in life. This is Steve Schallenberger with Becoming Your Best, wishing you a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Becoming Your Best podcast. Don't forget you can find more great episodes of the podcast at becomingyourbest.com forward slash podcast, along with great show notes, a full transcript of the episode, and all the links and resources mentioned in the episode. Please share your comments and questions with us. We want to hear from you. The best way you can show your appreciation for our podcast is to leave an honest rating and review on iTunes. Now it's time for you to take action and truly start becoming your best. Remember, good, better, best. Never let it rest until the good is better and the better is best.